Hello and welcome to today's Euroactive event, where we'll be talking about the European Commission's study on new genomic technologies and asking what's next. My name is Dave Keating. I'm a journalist based in Brussels, and I'm coming at you live from the Euroactive studios in the heart of the EU quarter. Now, the use of gene editing technologies in plants has come under increasing scrutiny in the EU over the past few years, especially following the 2018 ruling of the European Court of Justice that gene edited organisms should fall, in principle, under the EU's GMO directive. This ruling was welcomed by campaign groups and environmentalists who warn of the wide-ranging ramifications from the use of such technology, including corporate control of seeds and environmental concerns. However, proponents argue that gene editing is a sorely needed innovation that would help Europe's agricultural sector meet the ambitious green objectives set out in the farm-to-fork strategy, the flagship policy for the EU's upcoming agricultural policy. It could also help the EU's health sector address some of the most devastating genetic diseases. Now, in April 2021, the European Commission published a study on new genomic techniques, known as NGTs, with the aim to clarify the EU's position on the technology, particularly in light of the 2018 ECJ ruling. The study has concluded that the current legal framework governing NGTs is insufficient, and it indicated that new policy instruments should be considered to reap the benefits of this technology. The question remains, what new policy instruments? The study also confirmed that NGT products have the potential to contribute to sustainable agri-food systems in line with the objectives of the European Green Deal and the farm-to-fork strategy. So how can the EU enable NGT projects to contribute to sustainability while also addressing all of the concerns that are out there? How can it best inform and engage with the public on this technology? We have with us a distinguished panel of politicians, businesses, and campaigners to discuss this issue. Let me introduce them now. We have Sabine Juleker, Director of the Food and Feed Safety Innovation and Innovation Unit at DG Sante, the Health Department of the European Commission. We have Gerlik von Essen, Secretary General of Euroseeds. We have Urs Nigli, President of Agroecology.Science. We have Andreas Weber, Professor of Plant Biochemistry at the Heinrich Heine University in Dusseldorf. And we have Viola von Kremen Taubadel, MEP, Member of the European Parliament, and a substitute in the Industry Committee at the European Parliament. She will be joining us shortly. Now, you guys at home will be able to ask your questions to the panelists using the Q&A feature on Vimeo. I'm going to go ahead and start that Q&A now. So you guys can start submitting your questions now. If you already know what you'd like to ask the panelists, go ahead and type it in now. I'll be reading out those questions that you pose to the panelists at the end of the panel. You can also join the debate online on Twitter. You can use the hashtag EADebates right below me there. So Let's start with some questions for the panelists. Sabine, I'd like to start with you uh, because I think you're best equipped to tell us what exactly were the results of this study conducted by the commission and what does the commission plan to do with the study? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, everyone in the audience. 
Indeed, you already spoke uh, briefly about the, the study which we uh, delivered end of April on request of the on the uh, request of the council, and I'm really pleased to say that um, the reception of the study shows the great interest that uh, member states, parliament, and stakeholders have for this topic. So, in that sense, we we already fulfilled. Um, our first objective, you know, that this uh, topic doesn't go unnoticed and, and um, discussions like those that we are having today will help us indeed to answer the questions you, you rightly put. So, um, what were the findings? Um, we found, obviously, that um, the GMO legislation currently has um, challenges. Uh, implementation challenges and that there are a couple of legal uncertainties as regards new techniques and new applications. Um, we have strong indications that the framework is not fit for purpose for some NGTs and their products. So um, that uh, gives us food for thought to think that it might not be justified to apply different levels of regulatory oversight to similar products with a similar level of risk. Now, given that the study was also based on uh, consultation in addition to quite a number of scientific and, and uh, study inputs, we also have heard quite a number of concerns. Um, concerns that have been um, voiced by NGOs, as you say, but also by citizens. And it is important for us in going forward to addressing these concerns. Um, we have um, also considered how could NGTs, how, uh, what is the potential of NGTs to fit into the objectives of the new Green Deal and the farm to fork strategy for a more sustainable food system? And there we have seen that, um, you know, these products have the potential to uh, contribute to sustainability. Um, I mentioned farm to fork. I should also mention, for example, the biodiversity strategy that um, you know it will fit there at the same time um, we have uh, heard that um, in going forward the applications in the agricultural sector in particular should not undermine the aspects of sustainable food production for example, in organic um, agriculture. So there are some concerns, you know, how different concepts will sit together. So what the Commission has announced indeed is policy action on uh, plants derived from certain, um, from certain techniques, in particular from those where we don't have um, inserted uh, new genetic material. And in, doing, in going forward, the Commission will launch uh, an inception impact assessment, follow better regulation guidelines, and will um, study various policy options to see, you know, what is the best way forward. I want to be very clear in terms of what is the way forward. We are not looking for a, a complete deregulation as some may uh, say or fear. We are looking for an appropriate uh, regulation 
uh, appropriate to the level of risk and also providing us with a tool so that we can benefit from the potential of uh, some of these uh, products that result from these techniques. Thank you. Go to Gaelic next. Obviously, you're representing uh, businesses involved in seeds. What are the risks if the EU doesn't get this regulatory framework right? Well, probably there are two consequences. One is, um, as already indicated by uh, Sabine, the EU has put forward quite clear policy objectives uh, with the farm to fork and the biodiversity strategy. Quite challenging uh, objectives, uh, quite ambitious objectives. And for the time being, what we have is indeed those objectives. What we lack is how they are going to be achieved, while at the same time, fulfilling some of the other political objectives, which are very often a little bit forgotten in the debate. And that is assuring productivity and economic well-being of farmers in Europe. And with that, of a competitive agri-food chain in Europe. So while we, I think, all as citizens, but also as representatives of, of different uh, stakeholder groups would agree, agree in principle to those objectives set out by Green Deal and Farm to Fork strategy. I think where we still need a lot of discussion is how can these be achieved also in an economically sustainable manner? Because without such an economically sustainable farming sector, we can talk a lot about sustainability and farming in Europe, but there won't be any farming in Europe because we're going to be outcompeted by other parts of the world. So that is something that I think still needs addressing. And a key instrument here, obviously, is innovation. Innovation doesn't take place solely in the area of plant breeding, although a recent study that we indeed at Euroseeds have commissioned shows that already today, two thirds of our productivity increases are due to genetic improvement. If we then combine that with robotics, drones, artificial intelligence, with all those innovations that are out there, partly already deployed, but partly more or less in the beginning stages, I think all of those innovations provide us with tools to achieve both objectives, an economically and environmentally more sustainable production. So what happens if the EU gets it wrong? Well, we have precedent for that. We see that already now, following the European Court of Justice ruling, many companies have moved their research activities elsewhere. That is mainly true for larger companies that find that a little bit easier or have halted their innovation and have their, halted their research projects specifically in view of product development for Europe. And with that, of course, we risk that we cut Europe off uh, of some of the most important uh, technological developments. And last but not least, there's also a cost to human resources. Um, we all know that there's a shortage um, and there's pretty fierce competition 
for the best brains, um, and that is true specifically also in plant breeding. And here we are talking about a very international sector. So if indeed technologies may be used in many other parts of the world, and we already know that they are, and they are allowed to be used in other parts of the world under respective legislation, and Europe would basically make it impossible to use them with their current uh, GMO legislation, well, we risk that these brains, that these innovators will move elsewhere. And that will be to the detriment uh, of the European Union, not only economically, but I'm pretty sure also environmentally. Last point, I think agriculture needs all the innovation it can get if it is supposed to really fulfill those ambitious policy criteria while having to cut back on public support. We're talking about the common agriculture policy. We know that the level of support is not going to increase. It's going to decrease in real terms. The Agricultural Outlook Conference of the Commission itself predicts a 4% growth over a decade. So that's 0.4% or less per annum. So if farmers are supposed to really become more sustainable, they need help. They need technology uh, that helps them to do that while still uh, assuring their economic livelihood. Urs, let's turn to you next. You're looking at all of these uh, issues with sustainable food and farming systems. How do NGTs relate to those systems? Yeah, uh, thank you, Dave, for the question. I'd like to bring in the view of the scientific group preparing the United Food Systems Summit, because there it's, that's a really hot uh, issue. The understanding that natural resources are slowly running out to feed a population of 10 billion people is becoming more and more prominent. Natural resources also include land areas used for agriculture, especially arable land, which is globally very scarce. Uh, there is a clear impar imperative in the preparation of the United, uh, <clears throat> United Nations Food Systems Summit that no more natural ecosystems like such as rainforests, peatlands, and so on are destroyed for food production. Likewise, an important demand is also that degraded, already degraded systems uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, should be re turned back, restored to sustainably managed agroecosystems. So this scarcity of natural resources and the limitation of agricultural land can only be solved on the three uh, on the base of three pillars. One is the ecological knowledge of agroecology, of agroecology sciences. The, secondly, the site-specific traditional knowledge of the rural population. And here is the, the answer to your question, Dave, the results of modern research. Uh, we need uh, the intelligence of, uh, of the human brain uh, in, by using all these technologies embedded into sustainable farming system. Of course, as many uh, 
critics of uh, of uh, these technologies uh, say the sufficiency strategy less food waste less meat production is also a very important approach to uh, relieve the pressure on the natural resources and to improve uh, global food security but how, uh, we can not, neither locally nor internationally uh, we do not see a relevant trend towards such a profound change in dire, in dietary behavior global warming is also in addition increasing the pressure on productivity my conclusion is a clear one complex diverse production systems is the first step we need to do towards a solution new technology well embedded are the second step and of course among these uh, new technologies excellence whether obtained through crossbreeding or with mutation breeding, such as genome editing, strengthen sustainable agriculture. Well, sticking with the science, let's turn to Andreas next. So Andreas, what does the latest science tell us about NGTs? Yeah, thank you for, um, for the invitation and the opportunity to speak here. And I would really like to, while I'm starting, um, second uh, the comments that Urs just had met, made, we need to embrace innovation at all levels to address um, the looming problems and the challenges that are, that are facing us. Um, and that includes also replacement um, for meat-based products, dairy-based products that we currently have in our food chain through novel types of crops. All right, coming to um, the recent developments in the, in the genome editing technologies. Initially, um, genome editing started out with enzymes that break the DNA double strand, either sick finger nucleases, um, transcription activator like uh, proteins, and then later on uh, the Cas9 protein. And the idea was to break the double strand. And once the strand was broken, it was repaired by the cellular repair system. And that introduced uh, mutations. And then you had to screen for these mutations um, to find your desired uh, change in the DNA sequence. Um, this is still a very um, actively used uh, technology, this double strand breaking and uh, the cellular repair mechanisms. But in the meantime, um, also new uh, Cas9 type proteins have been discovered from different bacteria um, that do the process more efficiently, um, that are less dependent on flanking DNA sequences and give more flexibility. But more importantly, um, the precision of the process has, has been improved, in particular um, through the process of base editing. Base editing means that um, the DNA strand is no longer broken and repaired, and during, during this repair process, uh, random mutations occur. It's rather so that a single base um, in the DNA sequence is chemically modified and then during DNA replication um, a new base is inserted. So we are no longer breaking the DNA sequence but we instead um, do a targeted um, editing of a single base. And this can be done uh, for the letter C to T and it can be done for A to G. 
so we can really precisely edit individual bases. And this precision has been brought to a new level by uh, the process of prime editing, um, where the Cas9 protein is fused um, to reverse transcriptase and um, a priming sequence is also included in uh, in the guiding RNA. Um, and that leads to um, very precise modifications of all 12 uh, possible um, base editings, but it also allows a precise insertion of small deletions or insertions at the site of the, of the edit. So that's um, some of the recent developments. Um, further, um, also now um, transient modifications of DNA can be made uh, through epi-editing, epigenomic editing, by using DNA metallases or DNA demetallases that are targeted to a particular site in the genome where DNA, um, for example, transcriptional activity can be repressed by adding metal groups uh, to DNA letters or by the uh, transcriptional processes can be activated by removing metal groups uh, from this particular DNA sequence. And that leads to transient modifications in the DNA sequence in the activity of transcription um, that will then have uh, phenotypic consequences but in the end the actual dna sequence will, rem will remain unchanged so that means we have only a transient modification of the uh, of the genetic code not even a mutation in the genetic code that will return to the previous um, after the next round of replication or several generations um, beyond this uh, CRISPR interference is now used um, as, as a way of repressing um, DNA, uh, um, uh, DNA expression. We can modify DNA, uh, RNA um, bases after actually the transcription. So post-transcriptional regulation can be influenced uh, by these technologies. Um, and we can do multiple changes at one site by multiplexing the guide RNAs so that multiple um, letters can be edited or mutated um, in a single um, experiment. And this can be done without introducing permanently foreign DNA in the target, in, in the resulting organism. Frequently it can be even done by only transiently expressing um, the Cas9 protein together with its guide RNA in cells without actually inserting foreign DNA into the genetic material of the uh, um, edited cell. So the technology is moving along very quickly. This also makes it very challenging for the, for the regulatory process to keep up. So how do we regulate, um, for example, epi-editing, epigenetic editing, where we don't even do permanent mutations in the DNA, right? So that's it's not a GMO in the common sense. Um, or in, in the currently used sense. So we really need to dynamically also update uh, the regulation. It needs, needs to be um, um, a live process, a continuous improvement of the regulation process and not uh, something that um, is now going to be set in stone and will be the same over the next 20 years as it was with the previous regulation of GMOs. I think I should leave it here and then wait for questions. Thanks, Andreas. As you say, the technology is moving so, so quickly. I think that's really the heart of the issue here, that the regulatory framework is really having a hard time catching up. And for that, I want to go to Viola from the European Parliament. Viola, at the beginning, I talked about the 2018 ECJ ruling and how it's basically kicked the ball into the regulator's court, saying, you guys have to deal with this. We're saying current regulatory framework doesn't work figure something else out. So what do you think 
should be done? How do you envision the regulatory framework for NGTs in the future? What is the best solution? Good morning and uh, thank you, Keith, and uh, thanks to uh, Dave and thanks to your active for holding this, uh, this conference. Well, I guess what we need and what uh, the study of the Commission has uh, found out, uh, we have to bring together uh, the evidence-based facts, uh, science plus uh, political actors uh, plus uh, NGOs working on that already for a long time. Uh, the uh, regulatory framework is not sufficient. Uh, we know this. Um, many of the scientists have approached that to us um, already for a couple of years. Um, with uh, the uh, European uh, Council decision in uh, 2018, it became obvious that we need a new uh, framework and that we need a new uh, basis for that. Um, I think this is not a quick fix. Uh, I think we really should pick up the debate uh, in the different societies um, around uh, uh, the science community. Uh, of course, I rely very much on facts and uh, uh, the re researchers' empirical data. There's no question about that, but uh, we have to consider that it needs to be accepted also uh, by the majority in the societies. And what I've seen is, let's say, a big uh, misinformation, miscommunication, not sufficient information from different sides, uh, and that needs to um, be filled with a good offer uh, to different levels and to different actors from the society as well as from the political uh, sphere. Uh, we see there is a dynamic in this field globally. We see that uh, researchers need a more, uh, let's say, liberal and open uh, framework, while on the other side, the precautionary um, uh, principle uh, cannot be ignored. And this put together a not easy situation, um, especially while we see that for a long time, of course, uh, we kind of prevent or avoided uh, the necessity and the um, request coming from, uh, from the science community. So now we are in a situation where on one hand, I think it is absolutely obvious that we have to react. On the other side, there is a backlash uh, from uh, a part uh, of the NGOs quite, um, let's say, a fundamental uh, part, uh, which maybe, um, how to say and how to frame it in a, in a uh, let's say, proper way. Um, I think the SDGs and uh, also the uh, uh, climate, um, uh, climate change um, uh, conditions, uh, could actually lead to a situation where we can um, find a solution in the uh, new uh, genomic um, technology. Um, but this is a political issue as well. And um, I see that uh, we have some groups in the society which rather would like to argue that the monopoly in the breeding 
industry sector in the plant, also protection um, industry sector, is so striking that a liberalization and an opening of uh, the uh, regulatory framework towards a more, um, how to say, unbureaucratic procedure, would it even, would it be more easier and uh, simplify it, especially for those oligopoly or monopoly? And I think we should rather differentiate in that respect. On one hand, of course, uh, we have to make sure that uh, public, um, uh, the public or public goods, uh, which are um, financed by taxes, uh, have to be accessible for each and everyone. And uh, on the other hand, we have to make sure that innovation, which is being created, uh, and uh, technolo uh, technological progress, which is uh, being created, in um, research institutes, um, on universities in the European Union have a chance to become, um, 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 how to say, to become a market good as well. And this process um, has to find a different path than just through the old regulatory framework. Um, but uh, I think we have to make sure that this process we need, uh, the process of communication, is well conducted um, and it really leads through a very, let's say, a transparent, constructive and, um, and inclusive process. And therefore, I see that many in the science community have understood that. Uh, they have uh, picked up uh, this opportunity. They have started to organize dialogues with the civil society and with the NGOs, with the farmers' organizations. And I think this is a good, uh, a good way how to do it. Thanks, Viola. So, Sabina, I wanted to pick up on something that Gerlich said and, and ask you about it. We heard... Uh, from him that the effect of the 2018 ECJ ruling uh, has really been to give less certainty to businesses. And we heard him outline how some of the businesses are actually leaving Europe because of the uncertainty created by the 2018 uh, case. Is, is, do you agree with that assessment? Has the 2018 ECJ ruling created uncertainty for businesses? And if so, what can be done about that? Well, I, I start a bit differently. I mean, obviously, the, the ruling has um, created legal certainty. Um, you know, I mean, this is a, was a clear clarification by the court. We, um, you know, we had a, a, there was a question, a legitimate question, and that was answered. So I'd say we have legal certainty. Um, what it created for businesses is maybe to, to be seen a little bit different because that legal certainty um, has taken away um, something which I would maybe describe as some sort of a, of a gray zone, gray area. And in recognition that, um, you know, this gray area doesn't exist, the businesses have taken uh, consequences. I'm, I'm not best placed to, to judge that, but what we definitely know that research has um, moved um, out of Europe, 
Um, although there is a high interest in research in Europe, I mean, the, the biggest advances are currently seen outside Europe. So I would say the judgment has uh, clarified, created more legal certainty, but obviously in this has uh, had an effect on, on businesses. Um, we definitely see that um, the current framework as clarified by the court is perceived by, in particular by small and medium-sized enterprises as um, setting a regulatory barrier that is difficult to overcome. And I think here is obviously food for thought um, for a new, for what we have to address also in a new framework that it gives access um, to the development and eventually to the market um, to to not only large companies but also small and medium-sized businesses because where I really would like to agree with many of the speakers um, we need any innovation tool that we can have in Europe to address the challenges provided we can reassure ourselves that these are safe for humans the animals and the environment thank you so Gaelic, let me get you to respond to that. Uh, what is your experience about the uncertainty created by the ruling and, and what remedies can help that? Well, I think the, the uncertainties that have been created are not necessarily in the ruling, but they're in the consequences of the ruling. And that's actually what the Commission itself has very clearly uh, put in its uh, report to the Council. How do you intend to practically enforce a legislation that treats two genetically identical products differently? How do you prove where which product comes from? How do you know what breeding process has been used? And how can you assure that such information would be passed on through the chain? We have an open source system. Uh, in plant breeding that provides free access to all plant breeders in Europe to commercially available material for further breeding. So we have a big research incentive built into our legislation. But if you can't distinguish what kind of product you're actually breeding with, is it the result of a natural mutation? the result of an induced mutation, random mutation by, for example, uh, irradiation, or is it the result of a targeted mutation? Genetically, they're all the same. So with that, also their risk profile, to come back to that point, would be the same, yet they would be regulated potentially very differently. And I think it's very clear that this is something that will not work in an international trade and business environment. We today, as the European Union, we are one of the largest exporters and importers of seed, but also of, of course, processed food and feed products. So how can we actually organize Europe differently from the rest of the world? I think that is a fundamental question that the Commission study very clearly identified as a problem, as legal uncertainty for all operators resulting from uh, the Court of Justice ruling. 
maybe one last comment, uh, if you allow me. Um, there was a comment on the on the structure of the industry and in how far uh, it represents a mono monopoly or oligopoly. Um, I think I would like to just draw attention to a report actually commissioned by the European Parliament itself, by SLOA, that very clearly identifies that the plant breeding sector is a lot less concentrated than the food industry, the crop protection industry, machinery industry, and many others. So specifically targeting this industry for a monopoly structure, I think is probably incorrect. And the, the push for further concentration actually does not come from liberalization. It comes from putting ever higher hurdles to access to innovation, which specifically small and medium-sized enterprises find very, very difficult to overcome. Viola, let me get your response uh, to that last point and also to this point about whether you could have, whether it would be possible to make Europe have a very different regulatory approach to this than the rest of the world. Well, let me respond, uh, respond to the first um, or the last point which uh, Mr. Van Essen has made, uh, whether it's rather oligopoly or not. Maybe it's more a perception thing. Uh, that's why I was uh, asking and requesting everyone to work on this and to explain better and also to disperse this study, for example, where you have the proof that especially in the breeding uh, sector, in the plant breeding sector, you have still a pretty let's say, diverse um, uh, or complementary um, uh, setting of different uh, um, industries or different companies, small and medium companies, uh, startup companies. And that's what not, uh, it's obviously not uh, in the mind of many of the NGOs. And they work on this oligopoly argument. And that's why I was putting this up uh, that if this is not true, and I guess you're right, uh, we should rather try to explain why an open up of this regulatory uh, framework would make a difference and would even uh, be beneficial for the small and medium enterprises, because I think this is crucial. Uh, with the patent, I think we should also speak very openly how we're gonna organize that and how we can find um, a minimum uh, nominator on an international level to prevent, uh, to have even more patent on those uh, new uh, genomic uh, technologies. I think this is also something which is of a big concern of, of many of the NGOs, but also of the society. And um, I, I, I have no doubts um, that we could find something, but of course there's a big resistance from many of, uh, of, of the companies and especially in the US. So, I mean, if we could work together on, on that, uh, I think we are already a big step forward. And sorry, Dave, what was uh, your second uh, question? About, uh, to Gerlich's point about whether Europe could have a very different regulatory approach to this than the rest of the world. Well, of course we could, but I'm not so sure whether this would be um, of any, uh, let's say, um, use, uh, especially for the research uh, community. As Sabina has rightly said, uh, some research start already to leave uh, the European Union where they see no perspective. And I think this is a very... Um, 
uh, emerging situation, uh, we have to make sure uh, that people who started their career uh, in um, genetic uh, science or breeding or whatsoever, uh, we will need them in the European Union as well. Uh, we will find ways how they can with their products, uh, which will be needed uh, in a couple of years more than ever, uh, that they can be um, they can be on the safe side and they will have a legal um, uh, framework or regulatory framework. But at that moment, uh, of course, uh, that is more hope uh, than reality, to be honest. And um, I know that will be a long path, uh, but I hope also that we will not lose uh, those researchers and those scientists. But uh, of course, protection is nothing new in the agriculture politics, in the common agriculture politics. Still, the CAP makes uh, makes it sure that we have a, let's say, protected um, uh, European Union from the outside world. But in terms of science, I don't think this is a smart solution. Well, I want to ask a question about public perception to our two science experts here, uh, because I think one of the issues with the ruling was that when it explicitly connected NGTs to GMOs, you throw NGTs into a mire of controversy because we know that the issue of GMOs here in Europe is so, so, so contentious and EU countries are very divided on it. We've seen just really a stalemate on this issue with different governments here in the EU feeling di very differently about it. Um, so Urs, let me put this question to you first. Um, how can how can we make sure that the debate is being science-led and not emotion-led and how do you best communicate with the public which with a European public that is widely anxious about these types of technologies? Uh, you're on mute, Chris. Thanks for this uh, question. Yeah, uh, for uh, the NGOs and also for uh, organic farmers, and their organization, it's clear that uh, uh, genetic uh, genome editing and all the further development of molecular uh, sciences uh, is the same as genetic engineering. And uh, this is for them uh, very clear. And, uh, and therefore, for, for instance, for the organic farmer, it is, uh, it is uh, un an unacceptable technology. Uh, uh, independently on whether it, it could uh, it could bring some solution some urgently needed solution or not and uh, i think this this putting everything into the same uh, in the, into the same pot that that is a, that is a that is a, a clear decision which has to be respected and uh, and Although I have been uh, working, or I had been working for more than 30 years in the further development of, um, of organic farming as a scientist and the research manager, I respect uh, that, that uh, decision. And um, it has also brought some 
advantages because the entire innovation uh, followed up by, for instance, the organic movement was more towards ecological innovation and also more to social innovation and uh, less to technolo technolo pure technology innovations. And also in the sector of, uh, of technology innovation, organic farmers have chosen a different approach. For instance, they have developed uh, biocontrol, uh, a completely different uh, um, strategy for uh, for horticulture crops to protect them uh, from uh, from from uh, diseases and pests so th this 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 understanding that we do not want this technology has also brought some uh, some considerable advantages so me but on the other hand um, all the, the disadvantages from that understanding that, uh, that within the technology, there is no, no, there are no improvements and it is not a difference how, how, uh, how the technology is nowadays and, and uh, in the past and ignoring the huge advantages uh, th th this uh, is, in my opinion, uh, uh, a very important disadvantage of the of the current situation. I see that um, we need very intensive dialogues, and um, we ne even need new spaces for dialogues. And I think that some of the approaches uh, taken by the European. A union such as creating living labs uh, where farmers, citizens and scientists uh, talk together and develop research ideas and, and, and talk about how agriculture could improve um, such new spaces for dialogues for me are utmost important and, and uh, I see that by discussing by asking questions, but also allowing concerns, which are, it's very important to accept concerns that, uh, that the common understanding of the potential, also of the potential of the technology uh, is, is huge. I see, already see a lot of progress. So, Andreas, I want to go to our questions from the audience, but very quickly, Andreas, if you could say also how you think public concerns could be addressed. I mean, as was said already, through dialogue. And um, my own experience from uh, science communication and also the um, science communication that we do in our plant science cluster is that um, people are very receptive um, to innovation they understand the potential of innovation. Um, the problem in this entire process is that the rather vocal minority dominates actually the public uh, discussion. Um, and it's frequently like, the, I think the, the majority is simply ignored in, in, in many of these um, uh, discussions. So you, you get, for example, from NGOs, you get claims that 
whatever 80% of the folks uh, would reject uh, GMOs in, in, in their food chain, right? Um, when you do actual, actually um, um, demonstration projects in our botanical garden, when we do uh, um, public discussions, we frequently um, do surveys and we see exactly the opposite. So the majority of people actually would accept, uh, for example, genome editing as a technology to make um, agriculture more sustainable, replacing fungicides with genetic resistances and things like that. It's a very easy concept and, 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 and people understand why that is important and how it actually contributes to um, uh, sustainability. Um, so dialogue is, is really important and in Germany this is also currently funded quite a bit by the uh, Federal Ministry of, of, of Research and we need more of these um, initiatives also at the European level um, that support science communication. Um, just like um, one point that frequently comes up um, in, in dialogues with politicians, with uh, channel audiences, is the marketing argument. Um, so when we discuss the science of genome editing and its potential for uh, genetic improvements uh, that replace um, agrochemicals, for example, um, we do get frequently um, from example from the organic farm sector that GMO free is an important marketing tool that people want um, and they don't want to get um, rid of this marketing advantage, even if the edited product, the genome edited product would be more sustainable than a classical uh, organically farmed product, right? Um, and that's also a problem for organic farmers because um, over the course of the coming years, they will lose some of their um, tools to control fungus. For example, the um, application of copper will be restricted. Um, it's also um, not to be expected that pyrotroids will be available for a much longer time. Um, because they are very dangerous to bees and, and also like to fish and, and, and aquatic environment, right? So we need to find solutions to replace agrochemicals and the organic sector needs to open and understand that it also provides benefits to the organic sector uh, to adopt these innovations. Great, thanks. So let's go to the questions that have come in from the audience. Unsurprisingly, a lot of them are to Sabina, but I'll try to spread them out as much as possible. We've had three questions come in on the same topic. So I'm going to put this to Sabina and to Gerlix. So uh, Antonio Gracha, Graça, sorry, uh, from Porvid, which is a Portuguese organization, asks, would it be a consideration to make this issue transparent to consumers by labeling uh, uh, by labeling NGT produce. Same question. Uh, I know it's, this is two questions from uh, Antonio. So it's actually just three. We also had it from an anonymous questioner. Could a company not indicate that a plant has been modified by NGT and propose it as a new variety? Uh, so Sabina, what's your answer to that? I think the first of all, thanks a lot, uh, Antonio, for your question, because, you know, in a way, these questions express the concerns that um, we have seen when when doing our study. And I think um, uh, Urs also said it, you know, we have to respond to these concerns. And one concern is always transparency. Um, what is the attitude with which we, we stand towards, you know, the products of these new technologies? Um, I think that is an, a very important um, point that the Commission will study 
transparency, um, the, the interest, be it of consumers, but also of users of these products, um, to know exactly what they have in their hand and what they might put, be putting into their mouth. I think that will be a very big aspect. And um, you asked the question, you know, um, will, will Europe um, have a different regulatory approach to the rest of the world? I can't answer that now because we will be uh, searching the, the regulatory approach that is best suited. But from experience, I know that any regulatory approach is a mixture of science, legislation, but also expression of the societal concerns around. And I think there Europe is a little bit different um, than maybe other societies. The European society, even there, I have problems, um, you know, defining it as one society. But it's important that we find solutions that work for Europe, for the European users and the European consumers. And um, I would also want to um, say that we absolutely, in my opinion, have to make a clear link between um, the benefits to society and the environment of these products and um, the technology, because this is surely one aspect where, where um, acceptance will, will and can grow. And um, as you may know, the Commission is also working on more information, providing more information on the sustainability of products. So we have various work strands which in the end uh, will inform better about sustainability, about technologies, about innovation behind. Thank you. So Gerlich, let me get you to respond to this as well. What do you think about this labeling idea? Well, I think that was one of uh, the points that's already addressed also in the Commission study. Um, the challenge about labeling is, what is it you label? You label a technology or you label a product or you label a derived product, which may be actually a mixture of classical induced mutagenesis natural mutagenesis and targeted mutagenesis such as gene editing in the future. So how do you label this product? What is it? I think that was one of the points that came out very clearly uh, from the commission study. Um, yes, transparency as such is, of course, an objective that probably everybody shares. But the question is more, how do you actually enable uh, transparency. One could be, and there was that part of the question that you put to me, yes, of course, you can indicate for a new variety that it has been obtained with a certain technology. That could be done. But how does that information then trickle through the chain to the final consumer? I will give you a very concrete example. The European Court of Justice ruling very clearly defined all mutagenesis products as GMOs. These are defined by legislation as GMOs. However, many of them are used by organic farming 
and they are labeled as GMO free. So how does that fit together? Legally, these are GMOs defined by the European Court of Justice ruling. Yet again, they are labeled officially as GMO free in a final organic product currently on the market. So I think we have to we have to be clever, uh, actually, uh, to think about how can we provide information. And I come back to what uh, Viola mentioned at the beginning. Indeed, making information accessible, um, more discussion, more openness, um, more explanation. I think that is a very important element. But I think we also have to be realistic. Uh, and see, okay, how how do we make sure that information in the end uh, is still relevant, is still truthful, and of course reaches the final uh, uh, consumer and is not, uh, let's say, evaporating somewhere in the chain. So I think that that is a practical challenge for sure. So we have a next question here. This question is for Urs, and it's coming from iFoam Organics, which is an umbrella organization for organic food and farming. The question is, uh, what should be the priority, agroecological innovations or deregulation of GMOs? Thanks a lot. Uh, yeah, I think that that's a very relevant question. For me, agroecological innovation is uh, has first priority. That's very clear because we have lost such a huge diversity in our landscape, and but also in our agricultural farming systems. We need uh, we need to go back to a higher diversity, and this is exactly what what agroecology is about. And there are different uh, different priorities, uh, different ways. For instance, uh, also digitalization, precision farming, and and uh, and all these uh, these kind of novel technologies are very useful bringing back diversity into farming system and having again a better interaction with the landscape so clear agroecological uh, innovation is the first thing we need to do but it's not sufficient we also need uh, uh, because in our for instance organic farming we are also looking for powerful varieties which can defend themselves against diseases and uh, pests and which can better uptake uh, nitrogen <clears throat> soil nutrients and which can better adapt to drought situations. So we also look for these new better varieties and uh, the question whether we use organic breeding techniques like uh, selection and crossbreeding, the, the traditional ones, or whether we need novel technologies, in my opinion, is, is, a, is a secondary question. We need better varieties. And if organic breeders can do it uh, with their technologies, their techniques, wonderful. And if they cannot do it, then we need the new technologies. So for me, it's not a contradiction. Agroecological innovation 
and uh, novel breeding technologies. Thanks a lot. So let's take, uh, we have another question for Sabina. Uh, this one comes from Eric Gall. Uh, will you assess the impact of lighter regulation on organic and consumers' trust? Yeah, thanks, Eric, for the question. Indeed, I mean, uh, I don't know if we will assess it exactly with with this question, but I mean, the the impact on new regulation on uh, consumer understanding and um, on market developments will always be um, will always be assessed. And um, I mean, lighter regulation. I think that uh, is becoming a little bit of a slogan. I think here we are looking a bit. Uh, for um, proportionate regulation, for regulation that is uh, commensurate to the, the potential risk. doesn't have to be necessarily lighter, but it has, and I think that is very, very important what Andreas uh, said in the beginning. It has to be able to respond to a very quick technological and scientific process that we are seeing these days and it has to be able to respond to the challenges on the one hand and respond to the concerns. So um, the impact assessment that we are planning to do and that um, also the public is able to shape um, through the inception impact assessment that we will be putting out there in autumn um, will surely look on the effects on uh, consumer um, trust and consumer confidence. Thank you. Thanks. So we have a question, next question here for Andreas. Uh, the questioner asks, how is it possible to distinguish natural mutations from modifications introduced by NGT? Uh, I think um, you're on mute, depends Andreas? on the complex. Yeah, yeah okay, now, um, yeah. Now, now it should work, yeah. This depends on, on the complexity of the changes. Um, a single change um, in the genome of an organism that has only two copies of this genome, let's say, for example, oilseed rape or um, take barley, um, it would be impossible to distinguish between a naturally occurring mutation and the mutation that has been induced um, by a genome editing technology. It's Without knowing what has been done, without prior knowledge, it will not be possible um, to know this. Um, it's a bit more complex with a genome such as, for example, um, wheat, where you have um, six copies, six variants of, of each gene in the genome. And if all of these six copies would carry um, a mutation, this is very unlikely to occur by natural mutations. Doing this by breeding a natural mutation would take very, very long. Um, and if you have such a, a change in the genome, for example, of wheat, it is statistically quite likely this, that this mutation has been achieved um, um, by a genome editing technology. So my answer is not, is not yes or no. It depends actually on the species that you work with, on the complexity of the mutations. The majority of the mutations that are currently in the pipeline and where already products are on the market, uh, in these cases, it is next to impossible to distinguish between a natural process and a process that was induced in the laboratory. And that makes, again, um, the regulation very complex because how can you regulate something if you cannot um, police it or enforce it? 
or even prove it, right? So um, that makes regulation, a regulation that is not policeable is not a good regulation. Okay, well, this is why we go to scientists because you don't deliver a yes or no answer. You give us the complex answer, which is what we want. We want uh, all the nuance there. Uh, let's go to a next question. This is coming from Sophia Gutenberger from the Munich Environmental Institute. A question for Sabina. Uh, how can small businesses benefit from NGTs when patents belong to big corporations? And she has a second question which is, uh, when will the announced public consultation start? Thank you very much, Sophia, for, for your questions. I mean, first of all, the public consultations, um, we have not yet a fully fixed timetable because we wanted to allow sufficient time to, um, you know, take part in events like this today to hear, to hear from uh, the co-legislator, to hear from the uh, stakeholders, from the society at large, you know, what they are thinking about uh, the topic. Now that uh, the EU study is putting out, you know, everything in a comprehensive uh, framework. Um, my um, assumption is that uh, this autumn, say uh, around October, uh, we will be launching the inception impact assessment, which is basically the roadmap and which also will uh, allow for consultation and feedback. And there we will also outline, you know, the public consultation steps. So I'd say uh, keep your eyes peeled from, from autumn on, because then I'd say we are ready to, to put out policy options that would uh, address concerns or address questions. And um, it will and has to address the question you just raised around patents, because we, we understand how um, important this is for the development of, of the market in future. And yes, there is a, a clear uh, commitment to allow the use of these technologies for, for um, development of products also by small and medium enterprises. And we will have to study what are the hurdles, the obstacles and the, the solutions to this issue. And I, uh, I think that clearly has to venture into patents as well. Um, a quick, if I may, Dave, um, addition to the question on distinguishing natural and, and NGT-induced modifications, I think we have to arrive at a point where it is in the interest of those obtaining that modification to let us know, to let the enforcement authorities know, to let the public know. Um, you know, if, if there is prior knowledge, of course, then uh, legislation is enforceable. We need to arrive at the point where someone is basically proudly going out there and says, I have developed this, this is contributing um, to uh, disease resistance in, in, in a certain plants. You will have to use less pesticides and people let us know and do not try possibly to disguise their innovation. Thank you. Thanks, Sabina. I have another question for you. Uh, this one comes from Thomas McLaughlin. 
As the Commission BGT study recognizes there is still much ambiguity about the interpretation of legal terms, will the Commission produce a follow-up analysis to address the ambiguity on foot of the Commission report on NGT? Well, it's it's right what you say. There are there are still um, ambiguities. Um, I'm I'm now not uh, thinking of a of a dedicated follow up analysis, but we are clearly thinking, you know, of addressing these points in in the context of the initiative, the policy initiative we have um, we have announced. So somewhere in that context, obviously, we will uh, deal with these points. Um, if you were looking for a separate analysis, no, that is not what we are actually producing at this very moment in time. But it will come in the, in the context of the policy initiative that we address these ambiguities. Thank you. So we still have lots of questions. I'm going to forego closing statements so we can keep getting these questions to you guys. Um, the next question we can put to Viola. Uh, this is from an anonymous questioner. On the ECJ ruling, how can we have a different regulatory framework when the ruling clearly said mutagenesis is GMO? I think you might be on mute, Viola. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, what Andreas has uh, has elaborated on, I think it, it's it's very striking to me too. So I mean, mutagenesis of targets uh, of targets of mutagenesis, uh, if we speak in terms of risk assessment, might be more riskier than, of course, on the more pre precise uh, new genomic uh, technology. And uh, as I said before, I think that many many people to their organic shops and buy their pasta and noodles uh, produced from uh, wheat um, with this mutagenesis uh, technology are not really aware of, of that fact. And I think it is up to us to explain better why this is really contradictory and why this needs uh, a new regulatory uh, framework and um, that some things obviously in the past are more political driven uh, than science or evidence driven. Um, as I said, uh, this might have had a reason uh, in, in the past, but uh, with the new technology and with the new also proofs of the meta studies of the risk assessment, I think there are overall no more than 138 or whatsoever. Um, there's clearly um, no indication uh, that this uh, a new technology is more harmful than that which has already been certified as uh, GMO-free. And in that respect, I, I fully share, of course, uh, the, the uh, perspective of uh, the person who has questioned or who has put up this question, but as I said, it is not just, a, let's say, a more or only a logical question. It is uh, also a question of the society and of the majorities, and uh, also then why political representatives, uh, decision makers are part of the society. We have to find ways to explain what we are doing and why we are doing this. 
and why we need to shift the discourse. And as I said, I'm ready and up to this, uh, but let's try to work together and to explain even in more details and try to start uh, not always with industries and the interest of the industries, but really try with the scientists uh, and people from the universities, public financed uh, researchers that make things much more easier than uh, if we come around with uh, some kinds of organization which are mainly um, financed by, by the industry. I want to go to a question about CRISPR, which has had a lot of thumbs up on Vimeo. How do you consider the off-target effect of the CRISPR technology? I'll open that up to whoever would like to answer. Who would like to answer that? Yeah, okay, Andreas? Okay, off-target effects have been observed, um, in particular in mammalian systems, not so much in, in, in plant systems. Um, the risk of off-target effects is becoming lower with new Cas9 uh, type of proteins and with more, more precise um, editing technologies such as base editing. And if the starting material is well characterized, which is also often not the case in, in traditional breeding approaches, um, it is actually possible to identify such off-target effects by sequencing and by this approach avoid that uh, lines that have that show actually off target effects are um, going into the further process uh, downstream. So I'm not concerned so much about off target effects because they can be controlled, they can be found, and they can be avoided. Okay, so the last question I'm going to put to Gelich. This question comes from Yanusa Saidi. Uh, now, the commission indicated that future-proof legislation is needed. How could this be materialized given the rapid development of the technology? Uh, we've talked a lot about how quickly this is moving and how it's difficult for the regulatory framework to catch up. So how do we possibly do this, uh, Gelich, when the, when the technology is moving so fast? Well, I think that, that is probably one of the points that, uh, at least today in this panel, I think we all agreed on, um, to say we it's insufficient to look at an individual technology when you define or when you draft the legislation, because you will always be late, you will define something that is already well known, and one little change, one little innovation may question your whole regulatory approach. And that's, that's actually the reason why we sit here today, because that is the finding of the commission study. We have a legislation that is more than 20 years old, and the concepts sometimes even more than 25 years old. And it just doesn't work if there is technological progress. So I think we rather need to look, and that I think is consensus also in the scientific community, that we look more at what is the result, what is the outcome of a product development? What is the actual product? What does it do? How is it composed? What's the effect? So that we really talk about objectives and real products rather than how did you actually get to that product? And that I think is also um, 
probably meant with what Sabina mentioned at some point to say, well, we need to look at uh, sustainability. We need to look at the policy objectives of the European Union. Well, if we take all of those things into account, then indeed we talk about what is it that we want to achieve. And from what I heard today in this discussion, we very much have the same principal objectives uh, in mind, more sustainability environmentally, but assuring economic sustainability for the agri-food chain and specifically for farmers uh, in addition. And how do we get there? And if technology or some technologies can help, that's nice. None, no technology is a silver bullet. But if in the end we see products coming out of, of technology pipelines that help achieving the objective, reducing pesticides, for example, um, reducing the environmental footprint, making food more nutritious or accessible uh, without allergens. In all these are very clear societal benefits that also have an economic benefit. And that's what makes them sustainable. If they only have societal benefit with no economic benefit, they will not be sustainable or they need to be financed by public coffers. And we know that those are pretty empty now after COVID-19. So I think looking forward, what we need is looking at outcome, looking at objectives, much more than looking at a single individual technique at a status of the year X, Y, or Z. Thanks so much. So that's all the time we have for today. We still have tons of questions that I wasn't able to get to, which I think shows the intense interest in this subject. This is one of these issues here in Brussels that gets a lot of attention. So we'll see, as I said, the court has really thrown the ball into the court of the legislators, the regulators, uh, and so we'll see what they come up with. I know I, for one, am certainly very interested to see what happens with that. So thank you guys for spending your morning with us in this conversation, and we'll see you next time for the next EA Debates. Take care.